let's get into Ephesians. Go ahead and turn with me to chapter six. And we're going to look at what I've entitled our spiritual battle attire, our spiritual battle attire. And before we get there, just as a quick reminder, we're in chapter six, but the book of Ephesians can be summarized by really three words, sit, walk, stand. I stole that from somebody. It's not original with me, but I like it because in chapters one through three, Paul basically says to the believer in Jesus Christ, just sit down. Let me tell you everything you possess in Jesus Christ. No commands in the first three chapters. Just sit and listen and just rejoice and worship in what you possess in Jesus Christ. Then we get to chapters four through about six, nine, and we see all of these different descriptors on how we are to walk, how we are to live out the fact that we've got these resources of Christ. How does that manifest itself in daily life? And so we saw walk worthy of the calling, walk circumspectly, walk in love, don't walk like the Gentile, right? Walk, 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 walk was used a ton in that section. We finally come to this section, which we started last week, and that's in 610 to the end, and it's the stand section. And the reason that is used as a descriptor is once you get to verse 11 and you get to the beginning of verse 14, you're going to see that word stand or a form of that word stand used four times in four verses, okay? So what's the implication when you stand in a battle, you're on high ground? The implication is the battle's been won, the high ground has been won, now you need to stand in the victory that you already possess. And that's what we're gonna see as we bear through this section. But last week, before we get into this section, Paul described our real, 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 um, not fake, not mystical, but our real spiritual enemies that exist. And there, notice, uh, interestingly enough, he describes our external enemies. Because those of you that have done Bible study before, you know we've got three enemies, right? Everyone remembers the guy with the pitchfork, right? The devil, although he doesn't, that's not a good description. I'm kind of joking there. The devil, the world system, and what's our third enemy? It's one that's in the camp. It's, it's our sin nature, right? It's the flesh the Bible refers to. That, that enemy is actually not mentioned in this passage. He's dealing with external enemies here. Devil, his minions, the world system. Remember, the world system is under the sway of the wicked one. We saw that in First John last week. And so we've got to understand, and this is what makes this, this section so pertinent. It's something that we don't want to blow off, is we've got to understand this. The Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. The Christian life is not full of roses and lollipops and dandelions. It, we're not taking a nap on the perfect, softest hammock with a cool wind, you know, summer breeze blowing through. I mean, this, that's not the Christian life. There's enemies attacking. And not only that, what he described for us last week is they are strong, they are aggressive, and they are downright mean. And they will not stop at just distracting you. They will not stop at just slowing you down. They want to destroy everything that you represent on this earth. They want to destroy your testimony in Jesus Christ. They want to destroy everything that you possess and own, including your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your spouse, your church, your job, everything you can think of, these enemies want to destroy. And hence the need, as if I told you this morning, hey, be careful. There's a group of people that's that stand right outside the building over here, they love to, to, to shoot their sniper guns at Christians. Well, number one, if I told you that, you'd probably go out on that side of the building. Or number two, if you happen to go out there and I said, hey, but we've got protective gear that will protect you, I wouldn't even need to convince you twice to put that on. And yet many times we come to the word of God and Paul is just going crazy bonkers to draw this, our attention to this. And yet this isn't even part of our thinking on a daily basis let alone a moment-by-moment basis, which is what it should be. And so you're going to see that he's going to illustrate this now in more detail this morning. He's going to give us a lot of illustration on how we can stand in victory. And we're going to get to, uh, to verse 13 here. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, and we're going to see verse 14, stand. Having done all to stand, Stand is, is kind of how this all flows together. But notice here that we've got a therefore. What does therefore always tell us in Bible study? It's referring to something that just came before. Based on the fact that we should take up the whole armor of God, based on the fact that we've got these incredibly aggressive, evil enemies, 
he, he repeats it. Now take up the whole armor of God. But what's the difference between verse 13 and verse 11? You notice the, the verb change there? He, he says, put on the whole armor of God in verse 11. Now he says what? Take up the whole armor of God. Little, little bit of a subtle difference. But I want to point out this before we get to that subtle difference. Notice that Paul does not move on from this quickly. Notice, notice that Paul doesn't just drop. And sometimes he does that, and that's okay. Sometimes he just gives a verse. He gives a truth, and he moves on quickly. Here he's going to, what I'd like to say, he's going to marinate in it a little bit. right? He's, he's going to stay under the surface a little bit. He's just going to kind of marinate in this concept of the armor of God, and he's going to draw out some more details. And the reason for this is this, is because if you think your enemy is your spouse, if you think your enemy is your boss, if you think your enemy is your children, your grown children, your little children, <laughs> if you think your enemy is your best friend, if you think your enemy are the girls at school, if you think your enemy is flesh and blood, you will come up with a flesh and blood solution for your problem. You will come up with a human reliance strategy to solve your problem. And that's what he's going to counsel against here. He's going to say that flesh and blood is not your enemies. Look at that, verse 12. But we've got spiritual enemies in high places. Thus, we need spiritual armor and spiritual solutions. So again, he doesn't move quickly on from this. To take up means the idea of taking it up with the idea of bearing it, of carrying it. And so it's kind of ironic because really verse 11 should have come after verse 13 in terms of order, because you got to take it up first to do what? Put it on. You got to take it up to put it on. But again, it's, it's emphasizing this decisive decision, if you will. It's, it's utilize what's at your disposal. Don't leave it behind. If you're going out into battle, don't leave it behind. Take it up, carry it with you. And by implication, what? Put it on, put it on. Don't, don't just, I mean, imagine if a soldier's like, you watch him in a battlefield and he's just like lugging around his armor. He's like, oh yeah, man, this armor is a pain. I'm just lugging it around. I mean, clearly you're, he's got to put it on, right? So this is all tied together. And not only that, but this, this verb that's used here, it's, it's an aorist tense. It's a decisive mental action. This means that if you think as a believer, when I wake up just because I'm a believer that I'm going to roll out of bed into the armor of God without even, ha- not even thinking about it, not even being engaged mentally, it's not going to happen. It's a decisive mental decision. He's giving us an illustration here with the armor of God. Now, as we point this out, because I want to make this uh, hopefully try to make this clear for us and just remind us, there's three commands that we've looked at in this passage so, so far. Verse 10, be in strengthened. Remember, that was a word that Paul actually coined. You can't find that in any other Greek literature of the day. He made up this word. He created it because it's describing something unique. That is, that is you are strengthened from within. It's kind of the idea. And remember, it was a passive voice. You don't strengthen yourself from within. Who strengthens you? the Spirit of God. And we looked at that last week. That was command number one. Command number two, put on and wear the whole armor of God. Command number three, verse 13 here, take up, carry with you, and utilize the whole armor of God. And what we're going to find in this passage, I believe, in terms of the flow of what he's doing here, these two commands to put on the whole armor of God, to take up the whole armor of God, simply illustrate how you are strengthened from within. This is what we're talking about. And the reason I say this is because I've met believers who said, yeah, before I went out today, you know, I put on my breastplate, or I put on my belt of truth, I put on my breastplate, or I put on my shoes, my, my feet shod with the gospel. And they kind of mentally <laughs> work through this. I don't think that's why he's giving us this illustration. I think what he's ultimately saying is you need to be in fellowship with the Lord. You need to be strengthened by the spirit of God because you've got spiritual enemies. You can't do it on your own. That's the main point, I think, of this whole passage. But he uses an incredible illustration, for, especially for the people in that day to say, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense. That clicks, everything that he's saying. And so when we talk about putting on the whole armor of God, we are talking about how believers live out the Christian life against their spiritual enemies. That's what we're talking about. So it's, a, it's still technically in the walk section, but in a sense, it's not progressing. It's what? Standing. And not only that, as we see in the next phrase, there's an expressly stated goal for taking up the whole armor of God. Go back to verse 13 and see if you can see it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Notice that word, that, another key Bible 
(laughs) study word, gives us a purpose that we may be able to do what? Withstand in the evil day. That you may have the ability to withstand. This is necessary to have even a fighting chance to withstand the onslaught of the evil one and his minions. And this word that you may be able refers to having power, that you've actually got inherent ability to do it. What's the implication? That if you don't put on the whole armor of God, that if you don't take up the whole armor of God, guess what? You don't have the ability to stand. You don't have the ability to withstand because you don't have the inherent strength. I don't have the inherent strength in me to withstand against the devil's onslaughts, our external enemies' onslaughts. Again, we're not talking about the execution of the activity necessarily, but the inherent indwelling power to do so, that we are enabled to do that. By the way, it's a passive voice. I've been saying that already, but passive voice, it's right there in the, in the, in the verse itself. You cannot make yourself inherently able to stand. Somebody else has to do it for you, through you, outside of you. So it's not done by you, it's done to us. We are enabled by the Spirit of God to withstand Satan when we do what? Take up or put on the whole armor of God. That's how we are enabled to do it. So this is how these things come up. Now, this word withstand, it's a form of the word that we keep saying, stand. But the idea is that you stand against, you resist. It means to be in opposition to. It means to set yourself against. It means to resist by actively opposing pressure or power. And what that tells us is this, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are united to the one who is victorious, who has won the victory. And yet the external enemies, even though you are on high ground, they keep coming after you. They keep shooting arrows. They keep attacking. They keep trying to knock you off of the high ground. And so the battle is won, but the skirmishes are not over. Maybe we could put it that way. And hence the need to be clothed in the armor, to be able to withstand and basically remain standing in a place of victory. And this is how these things work together. Now, um, notice that, notice he says to withstand in the evil day. It's kind of interesting. And you're like, man, what is that day? Well, it used to, you know, it used to be April 15th, right? When taxes were due, that was the evil day. (laughs) That's one of, one of many evil days. But no, all joking aside, Every day that Satan is out there and his forces are coming against us is an evil day. It's the evil day. So today is the evil day. When tomorrow comes and becomes today, then today is the evil day. Every day is, quote unquote, the evil day because our enemy is relentless. Our enemy doesn't stop. Do you think that it's some that someday that Satan just says, you know what, on December 25th, I'm gonna call off the world system. I'm gonna call off the the influence that the world system, I'm just, in fact, that's probably one of the days he ramps up the world system, right? Because we're all like feeling like we gotta go stuff presents under the tree and get everything for everybody. But he he doesn't do that. He never takes a break. There's, There's no backing off of our enemies. And so every day is evil. And hence again, the need for outside strength, outside empowerment. You know, one of the things that we see is, is there's even more specific times in our lives. Do you, do you ever feel like there are certain times, certain seasons in your life where you are more aggressively tempted by certain things? Or there, you're, you're aggressively tempted, thoughts are, are, are in your mind that, that, whoa, it's like, wow, I can't believe I even thought that because I, I haven't felt like I've thought a thought like that for a couple years. And, and you go through seasons where there's an aggressive, maybe push on you or a, an enticement to sin. Does anybody, is that just me? Or is that it? does that happen to other people? Where you feel like there's a season like that. This is what it's describing here too. And I think that Satan, the world system, his minions, at some level, you, you get a little target on your back and they say, hey, let's mess with this person a little bit. Let's aggressively come after this person a little bit. And I think that happens sometimes. Those, that would be considered the evil day. And, and we want to withstand in the evil day. We want to be able to stand up in the evil day against those onslaughts. And again, it just simply points out our desperate need for this spiritual armor. If we don't, if we don't see that, we're missing the point of the passage. This is what it's there for. It's our desperate need 
for the spiritual armor. And this is why he says what he says there in verse 13, before we move on to 14, having done all to stand. Having done means to, to work out, to bring about, to accomplish, to carry out a task until it's finished. We might say to be well-prepared. Now that, you, now that you're, you're well-prepared, now that you've put on the armor of God, now you're ready to stand because you're prepared for it. You're prepared for those onslaughts. And so this final statement here in verse 13 becomes the impetus for the command in verse 14. And what is that command? Again, notice again, another therefore, but the command is to stand. Stand therefore. See, see, I just keeps building his argument. It's just like this. It's just like Paul. I mean, he connects the dots for us. He's building the argument here, here, and here. But stand therefore. And then he goes into having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then he's going to mention some more of the detailed armament that is part of the whole armor. And so he says, stand therefore. Again, the goal of the believer is not to what? Advance. That's not the goal. Don't, don't put that kind of pressure on yourself. Stand with the victor. You know, to, to overly sit, hold the hand of Jesus Christ. He's, he's one. I mean, you're united to him anyways. This is the whole point of being strong in the Lord, as he talked about in verse 10, being in strength and in the Lord. You're in union with him anyways. One of the things that we see in the passage is stand is, is an aorist tense imperative. It's a command. It means to stand or set in place. And again, notice this is only to be done when? After you're well-prepared. After you have, as he says, done all to stand, which means you've taken up and put on the whole armor of God. And again, before we get into the details and you think, oh man, I gotta put my shoes on a certain way. I gotta put this on a certain way. We're not talking literally, this is a figurative illustration for what? I think being in fellowship with the Lord, being filled by the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, walking by faith. All of those terms that we typically use, this is just a picture to give us more of a visual of of exactly what's going on here and what's important. Now, he's going to go through the details of what having done all looks like. That's why he's going to start pulling this in with the individual pieces of armor. But don't assume for a minute that it's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. Some people are like, well, I got love today, but I don't have joy, you know, kind of. That's not how the fruit of the Spirit works. It like comes in a package deal. And that's why you're going to see in this passage, he, he says it multiple times, it's the whole armor of God. It's not just, well, man, this breastplate's getting a little heavy. I think I'm going to lay that aside, but I'll still put my sandals on. You know, it's, that's not what he's talking about at all. This is the whole thing. This is the whole armor of God. In fact, Paul, as, as we walk through this, he's going to describe the typical order that Roman soldiers put their gear on. So again, how does Paul know this? Well, remember, as he's writing this, he's chained to a Roman soldier, right? Every, every six hours, every four hours, there was a rotation, Another guy came in. So he had lots of time to probably daydream and make this connection, if you will, this, this, this metaphor, this illustration. And not only that, but Roman soldiers were all over the Roman Empire. So people that he wrote to had seen Roman soldiers. They knew exactly what he was talking about. So very interesting. And then in typical Paul fashion, this is his eighth and final run-on sentence in the book. It starts in verse 14. It goes all the way to verse 21 sentence. He's like, he's pumped, man. He's, he's excited. He can't get, he can't spit it all out. He's so excited about this connection that he's making uh, to this image. Now, one of the things that we're going to see as we look at the first few descriptions, and, and you'll see this there right in verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your, uh, your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so it seems to talk about something that you've already done. It seems to talk about something that's past tense. And, and it is because what did he just said? Having um, done all. So, so he's assuming that you put it on. And now he's saying, because you put it on, stand. And he's saying, because you have already put on these things. And this is why that past tense is used here. What's really fascinating is when you get to verse 17, he gives us another command. That word take is a command. So it's still something they need to decisively do at that moment. So let's kind of move through this as we go through. Let's look at the belt, uh, as he says, having girded your waist with truth. 
The word girded means to, to wrap around. Um, we, don't, we don't typically use that word anymore. That's, it seems, uh, it seems out, out of date, the, this idea of girding yourself. But what it, uh, back in these days, the, you know, in this, in this culture, they would wear long robes. And if they were going to do anything with activity, if they were going to run, they were going to move quickly, they were going to be kind of moving around, they would take their robes, literally roll them up, and then tie them off in their waist to give them freedom of movement. That was the whole goal of this girding up. And so when a soldier went into a battle, they would gird their, their, their robes up so that they had freedom of movement. It was an idea of, hey, I'm, being pre- I'm getting prepared. I'm not just laying around in a hammock today. I'm not just carving. I'm not whittling. I'm actually getting ready for battle. So I'm going to kind of get this pulled up above the knees and so I can go, basically. The other thing that we see is that this piece of armament, this belt, although it seems kind of maybe maybe just single purpose, it was actually um, a piece of armament that tied together a lot of other pieces of armament. In fact, the belt would come on and, and connect the breastplate to, to, to the person so it wouldn't fall off. It would give it one more layer of um, you know, connectivity or security. Also, it was where the, the sword went. It was where the sword... So it actually brought together multiple pieces, this belt, for a Roman soldier. And so what is the believer to gird themselves with? Well, it says truth. And by definition, truth is unveiled reality. It's the veritable essence of a matter. It's the reality pertaining to an appearance. Now, right away, when we see the word truth, many of us think, oh, that's the word of God. That's got to be the Bible. But you know, I don't think that's what he's referring to here in this verse. Because why? Because later on, we're going to be told that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So I don't think he's using that as the same metaphor. So what is he talking about here? I think he's talking about the quality of truthfulness. I think he's saying, let, let your life as you, as you walk out, be filled with truthfulness, be connected with truthfulness. That's going to enable you to move and handle the onslaughts of the enemy as if you were living out a truthful life. And that's obviously something the Spirit of God wants to produce in us because in John 14, 6, we learned that not only was Jesus truthful, but what is Jesus? He is truth. He's a source of all truth. Thus, he is truthful in all of his dealings. And I think this is one of those things that the believer, if they will manifest this in their life and value truthfulness in their life, it prepares them for the onslaughts of the enemy. Because how does the enemy often attack? Attacks in this area through, through lies, many lies, many oftentimes convincing lies. And this is obviously an area that Satan attacks, his minions attacks. And so the piece of armament that holds it all together is truthfulness. Now, knowing and living our lives based upon the truth, living in truthfulness, it places us in a state of readiness for any and all circumstances or trials. And I, I think, I mean, I just, I hate to almost say this out loud, but let's just be real with each other for just a second. Not that we haven't been, but how many, how many times in your daily life are you tempted to lie? You ever, you ever considered that? If, if you work, if you've got friends, family, how many times are you tempted to be slightly deceitful, hold back maybe the whole truth? How, I mean, how many times, literally, if you, if you just thought about that, how many times does that happen on a day-to-day basis for you? How many times are you tempted to, to shade the truth, hold back the truth, cheat on something, not give all the information on something, withhold a piece of information from somebody. I mean, how many times does that happen in our life? I mean, it happens all the time. I think if, we, if we're being honest with ourselves, it's kind of something we don't want to admit because, you know, what do you call someone that lies? No one wants to be called a liar. <laughs> and yet many times that's exactly what we do. We're deceitful. We, we shade things to people. And then we justify it in our mind. We justify it. And see, this is a chink in your armor as a spiritual believer. See, we, we don't think that something that small could knock us out of fellowship with the Lord, and it does every single time. And the question becomes, is it worth it? Is it worth it to not tell the truth? Is it worth it to make yourself look better? Because if you told the truth, it would make you look bad. Is that worth being knocked out of fellowship with the Lord? Is that worth being more susceptible to Satan's attacks? 
And you know, one of the things as we kind of work our way back in this passage, you know what's, what ends up happening is we succumb to this attack. We get knocked out of fellowship with the Lord. We stop standing firm. We start slumping our shoulders, putting our head down. We start backing off of the mountain, so to speak, that Christ has won. And we back down. We back down. We check out of the fight, so to speak. And it all started with something this simple. And so he's saying, wrap it up in truthfulness. Be, value truthfulness in your life. And so this is our first piece of armor. The second one we move to is in verse 14. Also, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And put on, it's the same word used earlier. It means to put on uh, a garment. And so this breastplate from a Roman soldier's perspective was armament that covered the body from the neck all the way down to the thighs. Pretty, pretty long when you think about that. It's kind of a, a, a big piece, but it covered the front and it also covered the back or a portion of the back anyways. Now notice the spiritual breastplate is figuratively, figuratively described as a blessed breastplate of righteousness. And it's a piece of armor that defends against attacks. Now we know, and we understand, at least hopefully we do, that we understand that our positional righteousness in Jesus Christ is provided for us the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And really, probably a, a better way to describe it, to be, be a sin offering for us. He's a sin offering for us. That we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. How? Where? In him. Connected to Jesus Christ, you can possess a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. This verse describes what we would call the great exchange, right? We've got two problems We've got a death penalty that we cannot pay. We've got a righteousness issue. We can never gain or obtain righteousness equal to God's righteousness. Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel took care of both. Jesus died for your sin, paying the penalty that you deserve to pay. And Jesus himself becomes your righteousness the moment you believe in him. The moment you trust in God's solution, which is found in a person, Jesus Christ. And notice this, he doesn't give us righteousness at that moment we become the righteousness of God in him. Can Jesus ever stop being righteous in God's eyes? No, neither can you because you are placed in him the moment you believe. That's the answer to our issues. But we're not talking about that here. This is something different because this is something that a believer needs to figuratively put on. The righteousness of God in Christ was put on the believer by God himself never to be changed. This is talking about something different. This is talking, I believe, about practical righteousness in the believer's life. Which, by the way, how is practical righteousness produced in the believer's life? Is it through gutting it out, self-effort, strenuous self-effort? Is that how we produce righteousness in our lives as believers? No, it's as we walk by faith, the Spirit of God does what? Produces righteousness in and through us. In fact, Hold your finger there and go with me to Romans chapter eight. We can see this very clearly put. How is righteousness produced in the believer's life? Well, look at Romans eight, four. It says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, produced in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so putting on the breastplate of righteousness, living out practical righteousness, is only going to happen as we're walking by means of the Spirit. Again, you can see this, this detailed illustration of armor really representing being in fellowship with God, walking in dependence upon the Lord. And so one of Satan's wiles, remember, remember it said earlier that um, Satan has wiles. He's got um, strategic, orderly plans to attack each and every one of us. But one of his wiles or schemes seems to be attacking the believer when they fail in practical righteousness. Have you ever experienced that? Where you've sinned, you, you've made a mistake, you've done something awful that you regret. And what does it oftentimes do? If your mind is not immediately taken back to the word of God, you begin to do what? You begin to think, I am worthless. I am unworthy I am a phony. I am a fake. I should never even talk or speak the name of Jesus Christ again because I'm such a hypocrite. 
Has anyone ever felt that way? Just cried yourself to sleep? I remember one time I was so disappointed with myself as a young man. I, I cried myself to sleep and I forced myself to sleep outside. I was trying to punish myself. Now that's not the solution for that. But you see the depth of despair that we can get in when we lack practical righteousness, when we keep succumbing to the same sin. And what is Satan doing? He's ready to attack you right there. Boom, boom. He's ready to nail you with his darts. You are worthless. You don't deserve to name the name of Jesus Christ. You have no value to him. You have no value to the church. You have no value. You shouldn't even witness anymore. You're such a fake. And who's winning that battle there? That's not, that's not how Jesus Christ feels about you. In fact, we could go through a litany of verses saying that he's provided for you. You cannot separate yourself from the love of Jesus Christ. You can't, sep- you can't separate yourself. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Satan wants you to think when you fail in practical righteousness, oh, you're out now. You're out of the family now. You're worthless now. You got no hope now. You got nothing you can offer him now. You might as well just go live it up in the world and enjoy what you can because you're, you're a worthless piece of turd to Jesus Christ now. That's what Satan wants us to believe. And so people give up. They check out of the fight. They say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I can't do this Christian life. And this is where Satan attacks. Living in practical daily righteousness is actually effective against Satan's onslaughts. The good news for the believer in Jesus Christ is when you sin, God has a mechanism in place to restore you to fellowship. No questions asked, no probation period. It's called confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and reestablish us in fellowship with him. You don't have to go around beating yourself up. You have to go around punishing yourself. The good news is Jesus Christ took all the punishment you ever will deserve, have deserved, will ever deserve. Jesus Christ took it one day, 2,000 years ago for you on Calvary. And so we want to move forward with the Lord. We want to utilize our life. We want him to utilize our life in whatever way he deems fit today. I can't change yesterday. I can't control tomorrow. But I can make decisions today to walk with the Lord. I can make decisions today to depend on the Lord. I can make decisions today to be available to the Lord. And this is what he's looking for. Satan wants to attack. And because living in practical daily righteousness assumes that the believer's walking by means of the Spirit, this is how we're in strengthened by the Spirit of God. It's gonna manifest itself in daily practical righteousness. Let's move on to the next piece of armament which is found in verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Having shod, um, again, we don't use that word too much, but it means to bind under, okay? Strap, strap your sandals on, right? This was kind of how they did. And to put on uh, and wear footwear. Now, typically, what do you, when do you put on shoes? Even in our day, when do you put on shoes? When you're going out to do something, huh? Typically when I'm at my house, I'm in, you know, bare feet, which is not a pretty sight, or I'm in my socks, right? So when you go out to do something, we're typically in shoes. And this is, again, it, it's, it's describing this being ready. And so the believer's footwear is described as, notice, the preparation of the gospel of peace. This word preparation means to be ready. It means to have a firm footing, a foundation that's a firm footing. In fact, Roman soldier sandals had spikes or cleats underneath them. Why? Because in battle, they don't want to be slipping around. Any sports fans, anybody ever played basketball on a, on a slippery court? You barely can do anything. You feel like you're, you're ice skating, and it's not supposed to feel that way when you're playing basketball. Or I even think of tennis, those that have ever played on a clay court, right? You slide, you slide. You don't have this firm footing. A Roman soldier's sandals would have spikes or cleats underneath it to give it firm footing. So that's, a, that's an interesting illustration for the gospel of peace. I want you to start making that connection because the traction provided to the believer via the message of the gospel of peace, remember the gospel is simply all about Jesus Christ. He died for you. He rose again. But that message, not only does it provide you peace with God, that's what Romans 5.1 says, but a proper understanding of this message can provide you the peace of God, Philippians 4.6. 
Those are not two of the same things. You get peace with God the moment you trust in Christ and his finished work. You never lose that peace. You never made an enemy with God again. But in terms of experiencing the peace of God, this is what we're talking about here. And it's an understanding, a secure understanding of what the gospel accomplished for you. In fact, the enemy strikes hard in this area and often for believers, largely around the area of practical righteousness. They, we begin to lose our footing when we take our eyes off of the finished work of Christ. We put it on ourselves. Now, I'm gonna ask a question. Normally, I don't have people raise their hand. You don't have to admit when this happened, but has anyone in this room thought that at one point you were saved and then later on questioned whether or not you were still saved? Could you just raise your hand? If you ever have questioned whether or not you've been saved. And I would say that's the bulk of us here. I, I wasn't scanning intently everybody. But the bulk of us here, the reason for that generally is what? Because of sin in our life? Because we aren't doing this, we do do these things that we're not supposed to do. And you know what? The, the footing of the gospel of peace is designed to give you st- security and stability so that you are not questioning your salvation. That you are assured of your salvation, not based on your righteousness, not based on what you do or what you continue not to do, but based on what Jesus Christ has already done 2,000 years ago. And it's so interesting because this is going to be one of the things that he mentions in this area. And and then we're going to also see later that he's going to tell you to take the helmet of salvation, which I believe is referring to the same concept, this understanding and rest of assuredness in your salvation, in the gospel of peace. And see, many times the Satan attacks in this area because he wants to mislead us on the value of the finished work of Christ. Surely Christ died for all sins except for this one I just committed. Surely Christ is forgiving of all sins except for this one I just continue to commit. See, we begin to devalue the finished work of Christ. Let me tell you this. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was telling the truth. He paid it in full. It's all paid for, past, present, and future. There's no amount of of feeling sorry or no amount of works that you could ever overcome or pay the penalty for the penalty Jesus already paid. The invoice has been paid in full. And so when we come to this, this piece of armor, this is where he wants our feet firm because Satan's gonna try to knock us off course and allow our feet to be slipping around. Again, I don't think this is talking about evangelism here. It's not that evangelism isn't a great thing. He's talking about the tranquility of mind, the security of heart, when you know that you're saved, when you know what the gospel accomplished on your behalf. And see, the Bible wants us to know. 1 John 5, 13 says, uh, what? These things have been written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that they may know that they have eternal life. And that is important. God wants us to know based on what Christ has done. And now we come to verse 16. Taking the shield of faith which, which, uh, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Notice what he starts this sentence with, above all. What does that tell us? This is one of the most important pieces of armament that you can utilize as a believer. It's a key piece of the believer's armor. In fact, why is it so key? Because it's the one piece of armor that not only protects you, but it protects what? All the other pieces of armor (laughs) that you have. It's it's that important. This piece of armor protects everything. And you know, I put that, um, the word the in parentheses there, highlighted in blue, and that's because faith here is articulated in the Greek. Now, they they left it out for translational purposes, um, but I think it should be there because it, are we talking about the, the verb? believing? Or are we talking about the established body of doctrine um, that is designed to be a a shield against the enemy's attacks? And I believe he's talking about the established body of doctrine, the faith, as Jude refers to uh, even later. And so um, one of the things we learn about this Roman shield, and you can kind of see it up here maybe a little bit, but um, it it was made of wood. It was covered in leather and it was dipped in water, okay? So that, right away, anybody ever lifted wet leather? What's, it, what's wet leather do? It kind of adds some weight to it. It's a little bit hard to lift, but they would do that 
Because the, the armies of the day, not only would they have archers, but they would do what? They would light flaming arrows. And so what it would do is as these flaming arrows were shot, they would lift up their shields, the arrows would stick into this wet leather, and it would be extinguished. And that was part of the defense mechanism against onslaughts. And so obviously the shield uh, is composed of the faith, and I believe he's talking about the established body of doctrinal truth. And this is why Paul says, above all, it's because this defensive piece is so strategic in its protection, not only of the person, but all the other pieces of armor. It, it keeps a fiery dart from hitting and spreading and making things worse. It extinguishes it at the moment. And so this is very, very much a secure and directly protective defense mechanism against the assaults of the devil. And this is what we see in the passage because he is going to be shooting fiery darts. And notice this, with, with which the shield of faith, you will be able, it's that word again, you will have inherent ability to extinguish the darts. It's not you, like, you know, you see, is it, is it Superman that can catch a bullet in his teeth or something? It's not you catching the flame. It's not you catching the darts and putting them down. It's not you being a Kung Fu master and snapping them in half as they go by your head. It's you actually relying upon something outside of you to protect you. That's the shield of the faith. And one of the things I love about this phrase is it's a future indicative. It means it's guaranteed. If you will use it, it is guaranteed to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. In other words, there's no holes in your shield. There's no holes in your spiritual shield if you're utilizing it correctly. And so again, this tells us that when we actively rely on God's truth, the faith that we're going to have inherent ability via the Spirit of God to quench not some of the fiery darts of Satan, but all of the fiery darts of Satan. Again, it, it tells us that it, of the value of being sound doctrinally. Don't minimize that in your Christian life. I, I know sometimes it's easy. You, you come to church, you think, I want to be, I, I want to feel something. I want to be, you know, entertained. I want to kind of whatever. I don't know what we think. I, I think we just, there's, there's natural ways that we think we can come to church. Understand this, that there is value in just sitting under the teaching of sound doctrine. Now, do we do that perfectly here? No, I don't think so. We try to. That's our heart though. We want to teach sound doctrine. We want to layer down verse by verse, phrase by phrase, line by line, so that we're, we're building on something. Why? Because we believe that this shield is going to be helpful to each one of us to withstand against the onslaughts of the enemy. We actually think it's going to be valuable in a very practical daily way to each one of us. And this is why it's important to what you listen to, the type of teaching that you allow yourself to listen to. This is why it's important. What kind of books you allow yourself to read. Sound doctrine is very important to withstand, to stand against the fiery darts of the wicked one. It's not something to just take lightly. It's very serious, very important. It has some very practical benefits, especially as the enemy is attacking you. To quench means to extinguish. Again, it's so ironic, but he takes aim at us. If we're not using the shield of the faith, he hits in one spot, and then what does fire do? It spreads. So he hits in one spot, but then what ends up happening? Damage spreads. Destruction spreads. And so we see the value of this uh, protecting us from other parts of the body. And I love this. The shield of the faith not only knocks the darts down or prevents them from making a direct strike, but it also extinguishes the flame that could spread. And in the sense that, like even in a Roman soldier perspective, is that you're protecting the guy next to you as well. When you're sound uh, and when you've got your shield used right, you're protecting the next guy. Because what if it just bounced off, caught the grass on fire next to your partner? It's going to destroy him. So you, you see the value as, as we're kind of going through here. In fact, the, the truth here reminds me of the Greek word katargeo. Now, that's going to sound like Greek to, to many of you. That's okay. It is Greek. But I, but I want to show a couple of places where it used. it's used because this word means to render inoperative or to put out of business. That's what katargeo means. And it's used of our relationship to the sin nature. Romans 6.6, 6, it's, it's the highlighted uh, phrase, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin, our sin nature, indwelling sin, the power of sin, whatever you want to call it, that the body of sin might be 
done away with, rendered inoperative, put out of business. Do you, do you know that as you sit there as a believer in Jesus Christ that God has done something for you to put indwelling sin out of business in your life where you don't have to be dominated or controlled or influenced by it anymore, that God's done that? God's provided that victory. In fact, why does he do it? Look at the rest of that verse, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He has katargeo, he has put it out of business. He's rendered it inoperative. And then tying back to Ephesians, I love this, Hebrews 2.14. Guess who else he's put out of business or rendered inoperative? Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, he might destroy him, katargeo, him who had the power of death, that is the devil. God can put the devil out of business or render him inoperative in your life. How does he do it? Well, coming back to Ephesians, what is he, how does he do that? It's through the shield of the faith. He does that oftentimes through sound doctrine. He does that through the in-strengthening of the Holy Spirit, which all of this is representative of. And so that moves us on to our last couple of uh, armaments. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take again means to take in hand. So this is, you know, the soldier's going out the door and he's like, hey, they're like, hey, don't forget your helmet, right? And it's kind of like as a kid, hey, don't forget your lunch. <laughs> Grab it. As you're going out, you're grabbing it, you're, you're putting it on. So you put on the helmet of salvation, grasp the helmet of salvation. Uh, again, they have to mentally choose to do this. Again, notice what does the helmet protect? It protects what? Your head, your mind. It protects how you think. And I think this is so important uh, again, to understanding this, because again, it, it protects, if it protects your head, what else does it protect? The rest of your body. You haven't seen too many guys take an arrow in the head and, and still kind of be moving around fighting. It t- typically takes people out, a, a good head blow. So it protects everything uh, as well. And so what are we talking about here? Well, I think we're talking about grasping God's plan and method of salvation. Obviously, he's talking about armor for the believer. He's not telling them to get saved. He's not saying take the helmet of salvation and get saved. They're already saved. So why, why are they taking this helmet of salvation? Well, I think it's, it's, it's key to understand God's plan and method of salvation. When I say method, I'm talking about by grace. Because again, that protects how a believer thinks. That protects how a believer is motivated. If you and I think that every time we sin, we're gonna lose our salvation, then we are only gonna be living our Christian life on the basis of fear. That's gonna be our motivation so we don't go to hell. But if we are convinced and understand that Christ paid my full penalty, then my motivation becomes one of love. My motivation becomes one of, I don't wanna disappoint him. I want to measure up to what he's calling me to do because I love him and I know that he loves me. And see, the motivation's totally different when we understand God's method of salvation. Salvation is by grace. It is not by works. It is not by effort. It is not by self-righteousness or righteous acts. We've got to understand that that is how the Bible defines it. And we better be thankful that God is not fair in this area to us. Because if he was completely just in this area without being loving, then all of us would deserve and earn hell. That's what the Bible teaches. The wages of sin is death. If you got what you earned and deserved, it would be death and hell. But God is so loving. He sent his only son. He didn't want anybody to go to hell, that his son paid that penalty so that now he can offer you something that you don't deserve. That's eternal life. And that's by grace. We don't deserve that. That's the whole definition of the word. And see, this helmet of salvation guards the way that we think so that when we do make mistakes, we don't think, oh, we're out of favor with God. And again, what does that do when you start to think I'm in and out of favor with God? You shrink back. You don't stand. You can't withstand the onslaughts of the enemy because you're always backing up, looking at your own feet instead of holding your head high, shoulders back because you're standing to the one who won it all. And that's the point of this whole passage. Now, there's one offensive weapon and it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This refers to a knife. It's a short sword designed for hand, hand-to-hand combat. Notice a couple of things. It's the only offensive weapon in the whole armor of God. 
And notice that this offensive weapon does not belong to the believer. It's, who's it belong to? It's not your sword. <laughs> it's the Spirit's sword, right? So again, it's, it, it's something that the Spirit owns, but we grab hold of it, okay? We, we utilize it because it's part of the armor that he provides. So question is, how do you take, how do you possess or take or hold or grasp the sword of the Spirit? Uh, is it through scripture memorization? That's what a lot of people will kind of make an application out of this passage where you got to just memorize a lot of scripture, cram your head full. Nothing wrong, by the way, with scripture memorization, cramming your head full of, of verses. That's not, nothing wrong there. Is that what this is talking about? Is it through Bible study? It's interesting that the word of God used here, the word for word, is actually not logos, which is the written word. It's rhema, it's spoken word. That's the, that's the word that's used here. So, so again, what does this look like? Okay, what, is, what does this look like? How does this practically work, work itself out? Well, I think it looks like the Lord Jesus in the temptation recorded in Matthew 4 when he's in the wilderness. And, and one of the things I want to I try to make a point and, and, and kind of go through, and we're not going to have time to read it, although I'd love to. It describes a believer not only receiving the benefits and resources of the Lord Jesus by actively relying upon him and his word, but, it, but, but the believer is recognizing and remembering the word of God and relying upon it. And here's the difference, and here's the distinction I'd like to make. Many believers just think that when they're in a time of stress, they just need to quote Scripture. I've heard that a bunch, like, yeah, when I'm in temptation, I just start quoting Scripture. And I would say, quote Scripture and rely upon the Scripture. You see the difference? It's not just saying magical incantations. This is not some spell book to, put, put, to cast all the evil spirits away. Like, we just say the words, and they automatically leave us alone. No, it is, it is relying upon, it is knowing the word of God. It's relying upon the word of God and it's relying upon the person who wrote the word of God, the spirit of God. This is, so it's a personal reliance upon the truth that you're quoting. Again, if we have time going through Matthew 4, you're going to see that every time Jesus answers the devil in a specific temptation, he says, it is written. It is written. He quotes scripture and then he relies upon the scripture that he's quoting. He he specifically relies upon the Lord for, for strength in those moments. So it's, I don't think this is a sword drill, like who can get to the verse quicker or who can quote the most verses. It is active faith, active reliance. And so again, it's actively relying upon the word and the spirit of God to utilize the, the truth of the word of God to protect them. We get this, this picture of the armor of God. And I think the encouragement as we go is really Paul's encouragement is, have you done all? Are you in fellowship with the Lord? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you trusting him moment by moment? Do you know what that looks like in your own life? Do you, are you able to assess yourself honestly? And I think that's the encouragement. Having done all, and once you, you've settled that, those short accounts with the Lord, stand. Start enjoying your victory in Jesus Christ. Don't be a, you know, a spiritual Eeyore you know, always running around looking for your tail and depressed and, and shirking back from who you are and what you possess in Jesus Christ. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thanks for your word this morning. I, I know this is such a important, just illustrative section. Lord, we don't want to miss the main point. So allow us to take that home today. And may, may you teach us, Lord, just e- each one of us individually, how, may, how we may walk with you and dependence upon you more consistently. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.